Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. As we continue our study of Colossians chapter 1, I do um, want to just remind you, just keep this in front of you, that uh, starting next Sunday, uh, because of the restrictions that we face under COVID and the uh, number of people that want to come and worship with us, we will be going to two services uh, during this winter. We'll be uh, having a service at 9 a.m. and another service at 1045 a.m. And so you're going to be receiving more information about that, I believe, on Monday. And so I just want to make you aware of that as we seek to accommodate as many people as we can as we gather to worship our good and great God. And so here we are in the book of Colossians as we continue understanding Paul's prayer here. Chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 9 this morning. Hear now the word of God. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every, every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word in which we can consider this morning. We pray that you would bless us. We, we ask you, as Samuel asked long ago, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Help us to know you and your truth and be conformed into the image of Christ. Help us to receive it with glad hearts and attentive minds and joyful wills. And Father, we thank you that we can read it this morning in English. We thank you that the Lucy people are, are increasingly receiving that privilege, that they too might receive the very word of God in their language. And so we pray that not only would you bless us, but bless the Lucy people in Papua New Guinea as you use Rick and Angie and their children to translate the scriptures and to make disciples of Christ. We pray that their ministry as well as ours would bear great fruit for the glory of our risen King. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the favorite books of mine is Nick Ripkin's The Insanity of God. Many of you, I think, have read it. Uh, a book of uh, testimony as to how God's church thrives in persecuted context. He tells the story of a man named Dmitri who lived in the Soviet Union under atheistic communism. Uh, and the nearest church building to Dimitri and his family was a three-day walk. And so he, interviewing Dimitri, Dimitri said, One day I said to my wife, I know I have no religious training whatsoever, but I am concerned that our sons are growing up without learning about Jesus. This may sound like a crazy idea, but what would you think if just one night a week we gathered the boys together so I could read them a Bible story and try to give them a little of the training they are missing? because we no longer have church. What Dimitri didn't know was that his wife had actually been praying for years that her husband would do something like that. And so he started teaching his family one night a week from the scripture, reading from the old family Bible and trying to explain the meaning to his kids. Eventually, the boys started to ask for more. They said, Papa, can we sing those songs that we used to sing when we would go to church? And so he taught them the traditional songs of their faith. And, and then soon afterwards, as they were singing and reading the Bible, they said, said, maybe we should pray together. 
And so they begin to add prayer into their little time in God's Word. Well, they happen to live in a very small village. The houses were closed, the windows were often open, and soon their neighbors noticed what they were doing. Actually, asked to join them. So their little group soon grew to about 25 people when the local authorities caught wind of it. The party officials told Dimitri that he needed to stop this religious meeting and even threatened him physically, saying, if you don't, uh, we, we are going to beat you. We're going to torture you. But Dimitri continued, regardless of the threat. Soon the group went from 25 to 50. The authorities, at this point, made good on their threats. Dimitri said, I got fired from my factory job. My wife lost her teaching position. My boys were kicked out of school. And he added little things like that. And he continued to teach his family the Bible. The group continued to grow. Soon there was no place for anyone to sit. The villagers stood shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek inside the house. Others stood outside, pressing around the windows so they could listen as Dimitri led the people of God in worship. One night, as Dimitri smoke, spoke, the, his front door was violently burst open. The soldiers came in and grabbed Dimitri by the shirt and slapped him back and forth repeatedly across his face, slamming him against the wall. One officer said, we have warned you and warned you and warned you. We will not warn you again if this does not stop. This is the least that is going to happen to you. As the officer pushed his way back towards the front door, a small grandmother took her life into her own hands. She stepped out of the anonymity of that church community and waved a finger in that officer's face and sounding, I think, something like an Old Testament prophet, she said to him, you have laid hands on a man of God and you shall not survive. That was Tuesday night. Thursday night, that officer died from a heart attack. Dimitri said, at that point, the fear of God ran through the entire village and community. The next time they met, 150 people gathered to hear what God had said. At that meeting, it was there that Dimitri was arrested. He would spend the next 17 years in a communist prison. He would speak of it uh, to Nick Ripkin, recounting the story. Uh, Nick says, Dimitri spoke quietly of a long, heart-wrenching separation. He spoke of sweat and blood and tears. He talked about his sons growing up without their father in the house. He described a poor, struggling family enduring great hardship. This was not the kind of inspirational testimony that we love to celebrate, Nick writes. This was raw, biblical faith. This was the story of one man who refused to let go of Jesus and refused to stop telling his good news. I wonder, where do we find the strength to not let go of Jesus, in particular when circumstances are like this? Where might we find such endurance? I wonder if Paul had some idea. He, of course, lived a similar life to that of Demetri, didn't he? So we see Paul prays here for the Colossian church. And in verse 11, you note, he says, May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. We're studying Paul's letter in, to the Colossians, and we're kind of in the middle of studying this, this wonderful, incredible prayer that Paul prays for them. It, goes, it starts in verse 9. It goes all the way through vo verse 14. It's a very complicated prayer. It's actually one long sentence. 
And uh, Paul here lays out his heart for these individuals, asking God to work for them. We began last week there in verse 9, and we read, And so from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. If you recall, we, we uh, discovered that Paul prayed that our minds might be filled with God's will in order that we might walk in God's ways so that we might be, bring God pleasure. It's kind of where we ended last week. This idea of bringing God pleasure seems to be the heart of the Christian life. This desire not simply to do what God says, but to actually please the Lord of heaven and earth. And Paul will go on and I think unfold what it means, what it looks like, what it means to bring God pleasure in this wonderful prayer and the verses to follow. In fact, uh, he does so. How is it that we might please God, you might ask? Paul will tell us we can do so four ways. And all of them are uh, four participles. Participles, you remember participles, a verb that takes an adjectival form. Okay? There's your grammar for this morning, I'm done. Okay. You, well, actually, I'm lying to you. Participle ends with ing. That's easy, uh, usually, typically. And so you can find them there. And so you just read on. It's like, what are the ways in which that we can please God? Well, you, you see that Paul uh, continued on in verse 10. He says, a bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God. That's number two, then verse 11, the English kind of obscures it, but may you be strengthened with all power. That's the third. And then verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. There's the four participles, bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, strengthening with power, giving thanks. So we please God, in other words, through a fruitful walk, a knowledgeable walk, a powerful walk, and a thankful walk. For our purposes this morning, we'll consider the first three save the last giving thanks for next Sunday, and I trust God will uh, bless us as we do so. So let's just consider this morning, how is it that we might please God? Well, we do so, first of all, through a fruitful walk. Once again, I direct your attention to verse 10, in which he says that we are to bear fruit in every good work. Now, when the Bible talks about bearing fruit, it's, I think what it's trying to do is trying to call our memory back to the creation story. You, of course, remember in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 that God makes man and, and women in his image, and then he gives them this command to uh, be, what is it, fruitful and to multiply. In other words, my image bearers are to, are to uh, spread all over this world in order to reflect to one another who I am, what my character is like as my image bearers. And so now we find, once again, that Christians are given this command. Here, we are to be Fruitful As we respond to the gospel, God is bringing us back into that position where we might bear his likeness into a watching world that we might fruitfully show the world what God is like. I mention that because sometimes I think we truncate the gospel to the, the, the events of Christ in order to provide for our forgiveness. Hey, end of story, period. That's the gospel. The gospel is how I get forgiven. The gospel is how I get my pass into heaven. Now, certainly the gospel is how we get forgiven. It is how we get into heaven. But the gospel is far more than simply just securing our forgiveness. It is securing a restoration of our relationship to God, which includes forgiveness, but it's far more than that. And so we, we see Jesus when he comes upon this earth and, and he begins to preach. The very first sermon he preaches in Mark chapter 1, we read Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now he preached the gospel and he did not say forgiveness is at hand. It is, 
But that's not the sermon. It's something far more than that. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. And then what does Jesus do? He goes on to heal. He goes on to to, uh, reverse death and restore families and calm creation. In other words, he goes on to show us what the kingdom of God is like. What does it look like when we're living in a restored relationship with God? And, and then he'll, be, he'll continue to preach, and, and he'll say, listen, you receive the, the kingdom like a little child, or pray that your kingdom would come, and on and on. You see, all the miraculous activity that Jesus shows us, when Jesus does the miracles, please understand, he's not simply flexing. He's not, not simply showing, hey, look how great I am, look how strong I am, look what I can do, you know, aren't I strong and mighty? That's not what he's doing. What he is doing is he is showing us what it looks like to be restored to God. What it looks like to be in the kingdom of God and in those relationships and what it will one day look like in complete fullness. You see, when God dwelt with man in Genesis 1, the world was a paradise. There was no death, there was no disease, there was no hunger, there was no injustice, there was no sadness, there was no brokenness of any kind, no grief or loss. In the presence of the creator, creation flourishes. But as you know, we have rebelled, have we not? All of us. We've all gone our own way. We've all sinned against him. And therefore, we have been barred from his presence. In our sin, we become untethered from God himself. And therefore, this world does not work like it's supposed to. And you can testify that, to that in your own heart, can't you? Physically, we don't work like we're supposed to. Emotionally, spiritually, relationally. I'm not sure who said it, but it stu- has stuck, in with, stuck with me. We're like fish living in a puddle. We're able to stay alive there, but it's not how we intend to live. The puddle is too small. Whatever you live for, living for yourself, living for your family, living even for this great country, that's a puddle too small. It's like a fish living in a puddle. And Jesus shows up, and from the very beginning, he says, I have brought God's kingdom with me. It is a breakthrough of God's presence. In other words, you can be returned to God. And Jesus, one by one, takes us from the little puddle in which we're living in and returns us to the ocean in order that we might flourish for his glory. I mean, is this not what we see? Wherever Jesus goes, just life follows him. It's like he's, to change the metaphor, if I, if I might, it's like he's walking in a desert and every place he steps, just life begins to flourish. Every, wherever he speaks his words, life returns. Backs are straightened. The sick are healed. The love are reunited. Idols are destroyed. Nature is calm. Depression is ended. Demons scurry the other way. Grief and loss, they lose their power. The captives are free. The dead come alive wherever Christ seems to go. He's walking and bringing God's kingdom, restoring us. Of course, one day we know this will, this will be complete. It's just a foretaste. And he will return and undo all the ravages of sin, and we will live in his kingdom forever in perfect glory, restored to God in the world in which he intended to be. That's where we're headed. You see how much more that is than simply forgiveness, as wonderful as forgiveness is. God's going to heal the world. He's going to restore us. He started already in our lives, in our communities. We get a taste of that in our faith community as we uh, trust one another and love one another and bear each other's burdens, as we uh, show each other compassion and humility. In other words, as we bear fruit of this great redemption. Bearing fruit pleases God. So I ask you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you gentle with your children? Are you patient on the road? Do you find peace in trial? Do you forbear with others? Do you love your enemies? You notice what he says there. Once again, look one last time in verse 10, at least in this phrase. He says, bearing fruit in every good work. 
every good work. Big works, like translating the Bible, like planting a church, hosting a community group, small works, like an encouraging text to a struggling mom, like being kind to ugly people. Every good work, we are to bear fruit. In other words, God's commands are not like a menu. We don't get to say, you know, uh, I think today I'll take a little love of God and you know, maybe a little love my neighbor on the side and you could hold the love your enemies stuff. Right? We don't get to choose. He wants to restore us in order that we might reflect his character and show him what he's like. I want to show the world what God is like today by bearing fruit in every good work. And when we do so, Paul says, well, we please God. We also do so through a knowledgeable walk. And we read on in verse 10. And see, secondly, that we are to increase in the knowledge of God. That we might grow more knowledgeable about him. We won't spend much time here. We considered last, uh, last week, if you remember, that Paul begins his prayer by asking over there in verse 9 that we be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so we talked about growing in knowledge. But uh, here it is, uh, this, this uh, very um, obvious command for us that we are to be increasing in our understanding of who God is. This, by the way, is one of my favorite commands in all the Bible. God says, I want you to learn more about me. Right? I say, yes, sir. That's like telling me to eat ice cream. Okay, I could do that. Right? Grow in your understanding about me. I wonder, my brothers and Christians, are you learning more about Christ? Are you growing in your understanding of who Jesus is? You've accumulated knowledge this year, certainly. Have you accumulated knowledge about God? For instance, if you were to ask me, um, hey, Stephen, uh, tell me about your favorite baseball team, okay? which is the Dodgers, in case you don't know. Okay. Well, I could tell you that, you know, Clayton Kershaw, after three years of decline in his uh, fastball, actually picked up a, a mile or two per hour, which is unheard of after such decline at someone his age. I could tell you that Cody Bellinger, our, our center fielder, tweaked his swing in the offseason and started as MVP last year, had a down year. Our skipper, Dave Robinson, he was, for some reason, sent us uh, stealing more bases this year. I could go on and on and tell you about the Dodgers, and all, you'll all be very interested, I'm sure, right? right? And, I mean, listen, I, I could spend hours... Now, that's not hyperbole. Literally hours telling you new information about the Los Angeles Dodgers that I gained this year. And you've gained information this year as well. And maybe it's not baseball because you're sinners. But you've gained uh, information somehow, right? You've accumulated knowledge. My question for you is, are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you learning more about him? And of course, as we do, we do not do so simply to fill our minds. It's not a cerebral pursuit of accumulation of information. It is to transform us that we might be more like Christ. So ever, ever since I became a Christian as a late teenager, I've always been drawn to doctrine, theology. The more, the more Latin and Greek you give me, the more excited I, I was. I just loved it. And yet what I found quite often is that those who taught most deeply seemed to be the most bored with the information they were teaching. So, such, such incredible understanding, and yet so little joy until I found one theologian that just revolutionized my life. He, he, he dove so deep in God's word, and yet did so with such passion and delight in his heart. And then I found Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, do, who do, uh, declared that preaching is doctrine on fire. Right? I just love that. I mean, yes, yes, give us the truth. We need to know about God, but do it in such a way that it has impacted who you are and the joy in your heart. I believe this is what God is calling us to do. And when we do so, when we grow in our knowledge of him, it pleases him. Are you? Is that a part of your pursuit? Is that part of your study, part of your desires? God, I want to learn more about you that I might please the Lord. 
Well, you see, lastly, we see that we please God through a powerful walk, a fruitful walk, a knowledgeable walk, and lastly, a powerful walk. You see, this life of pleasing to God is not something that we do on our own strenuous effort. God actually provides the strength for us, as we see there in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, he says. So Jesus is not like a well-meaning parent sitting in the bleachers cheering you on in this game of life. Rather, he, he's not up there rooting for you. He is strengthening you. And you note very carefully there in verse 11, he is doing so with all power. And as if that were not enough, Paul adds this incredible phrase, according to his glorious might. Now note that preposition there, according to, not and he doesn't say he's strengthening you out of his glorious might, but according to his glorious might. In other words, if a millionaire came to you and said, listen, I'm going to give, give to you out of my wealth, well, you might expect two bucks. But if he says, I'm going to give you according to my wealth, well, you would expect far more than that. And God says, I'm going to strengthen you according to my glorious might. That's what Paul is praying. And so what, what is it that we will use that strength for? I asked my children last night, if God were to promise you strength, he's going to strong, promise you power, what would you use that power for? What kind of power would you ask for? Maybe you say, I'd like to succeed in all my endeavors. Perhaps you say, you know, you know I want to crush my enemies. I don't know what it might be. Probably you're, you're too godly for something like that. And so you might say, well, I would love to preach uh, life-altering sermons. I'd love to be this incredible, bold, and courageous, and effective evangelist. I, I would love to be able to, to, to heal the sick or cast out uh, demons, even. What would you ask for? Power. God says, I'm going to strengthen you with all power according to my glorious might. Notice Paul tells us, actually, what, he's going to pro what this strength is for, what, why he provides it. It is to keep you going so that you might endure. Look again. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Oh, that's kind of a letdown, isn't it? Power to be patient? Strengthened to endure? Endurance some have said, is the ability to press on in the midst of stress and adversity. It's to be able to move forward in difficult circumstances. I think Winston Churchill, great prime minister of England who guided uh, the UK through its darkest hours, knew something of this. He was actually invited to his alma mater at the end of his uh, political life. There he addressed the students. A little five-foot-five bulldog of a man uh, took that lectern, and everybody's eyes were glued upon him. What would this great prime minister, perhaps England's greatest politician of his uh, generation, certainly, what would he say? Well, his speech was brief. Fourteen words. Right? Young gentlemen, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never. And then he sat down. Perhaps this is something Paul has in mind when he says that may God strengthen us with all power according to his glorious might so that you might endure. That you might never give up. Christian, do you need endurance? As we mentioned last week, if you live a life of pleasing to the Lord, there is an audience in whom you will not please, namely the world. The world will then rise up in opposition to you. They, you will experience difficulty and you will need endurance in order to get through it. You will need endurance to overcome the enemies that rise before you. 
It was after reflecting on his victory over Napoleon that another Englishman, Duke Wellington, explained, our men were not braver than the enemy. They were merely braver for five minutes longer than the enemy. We need to endure. We need to push on. And to endurance, Paul adds patience. So if endurance is a reference to challenging circumstances, perhaps patience is a reference to challenging people. And so in order to please the Lord, we are to, therefore to freely forgive those who wrong us as we have been forgiven. We are not to repay evil with evil as the Lord has repaid our evil with grace. It was the great Augustine who said of the one who shows patience... He prefers to endure evil so as to not commit it rather than commit evil so as to not endure it. May we be the patient ones who prefer to endure it rather than commit it. May God provide us the strength in this life that we can endure, that we can be patient, that we can be kind to that cutting remark that we can suffer through the injustices of that, uh, of that biased boss, that, that we might forbear with people just as God has forborne with us through God's strength. We see it in teenagers who bow in prayer before the game or before an exam or they're at lunch around their, their, their mocking peers that they are testifying, I belong to God and I don't care what this world says. He is mine and I am his. And it is that type of, of endurance, it is that type of patience that pleases God. In fact, it is an endurance that we are to do as God's word tells us with joy. As if to make this hard enough, notice how this, little, this verse ends there, that we are to, to be strengthened with all glorious power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I think many people endure through willpower. And you say, are you enduring? I say, yes. I say, with joy? No way. I'll push on, but there's no joy in my heart. I have a little bit of that in me, I could push through, but I think we really begin to see the strength of God, the power according to his glorious might when we're able to do it with a joyful heart. Extraordinary, isn't it? To be joyful, joyful endurance in troubling times, heartwarming patience with troubling people. My friends, that pleases the Lord. We might do this in light of the hope that we have. You know, the Bible says that these light and momentary afflictions, these light and momentary, we might add, afflictors, well, they're not worth comparing to the glory that you will receive in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is the worst, your life, you're going to live forever, Christian, this is the worst it's going to be. It is only going to get better. That ought to put joy in our heart when we encounter difficulties and we encounter troubles. We're not here to avoid trouble. We're not here to maximize our ease. We're not here to make our life as comfortable and secure as possible. We are here to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, that serves the Lord. And when we do so, we will be forced to endure difficulty and hardship. And we are to do so with joy when it comes our ways. You remember Paul and Silas there in Philippi, their, their, their backs beaten with rods, thrown in the inner cell in the dungeon there in Philippi, their feet in stockades. And what do they do at midnight? They sing praises to God. And all of Philippi is shaken as a result. You want to shake the world for God as you bring him pleasure? Right? You, you want to see people released from their bondage as we see in Philippi? Then endure, not with grim determination, but with God's strength. 
and indeed with joy. I think we see something of this in Dimitri's life. If you don't mind, I'll finish his story. I mentioned he was taken to prison. There, there he was placed in a tiny cell where he said it was one step from the front door to the foul open toilet on the opposite wall. He would spend the next 17 years as the only Christian amongst 1,500 hardened criminals. He said that was the hardest. The isolation was the hardest. The physical beatings in which I endured all the time, that was one thing. But being alone was the most difficult. And yet he remained faithful to Christ in the midst of that. And he did so, uh, he explained, because he continued in a discipline his father had taught him. For those 17 years, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed, face east, raise his arms in praise to God, and loudly sing what he called his heart song to Jesus. You're not surprised to hear that the other inmates did not appreciate the solo. Dimitri recounted laughter, curses, jeers. Prisoners banged metal cups against iron bars. They threw food, sometimes human waste, in order to try to, extingu in order, order to, try to extinguish that only light that was shining amongst 1,500 criminals. And yet he continued day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, even though the guards would sometimes charge in his cell and beat him to shut him up, as soon as they left, he stood face east, raised his arms to heaven, and began to sing his song of praise to Jesus. Until they finally broke him. They did so after many years when they told him his wife was murdered. And his sons were now being raised by the state. At that point, Dimitri's resolve fa failed, faltered at least. He told the guard, you win, I'll sign your confession. I must get out of here in order to find where my boys are. The guard said, well, we will prepare your confession tonight, and then you will sign it tomorrow, and you will go free. You see, after all those years, there's only one thing he had to do, was to sign his name on a document saying that he was not a believer in Jesus Christ and that he was a paid agent of a Western government, and then he could go home, be free. That night, Dimitri sat upon his bed in a deep despair, grieving that he had given up on Christ. At that same moment, about 500 miles away, his family, his wife, his sons, and his brother, had a sense of Dimitri's despair. They knelt in a circle and they began to pray out loud for him. Dimitri would testify immediately he knew, number one, that his family was alive. He knew, two, that they remained in the faith. And he knew, thirdly, that they were praying for him at that point. The next morning when the guards marched into his cell, Dimitri smiled at them and boldly declared, I'm not signing anything. Last night, my wife and my sons and my brother were praying for me. You lied to me. I know that my wife is alive. I know that my sons are with her. I also know they are still in Christ, so I'm not signing anything. In response, the guards were enraged. They grabbed him and dragged him from his cell in order to execute him in their courtyard. And as they dragged him through the center corridor in, that, in the center of that prison, before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before they stepped out into the place of his execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention to their bed, faced east, 
raised their arms to heaven and began to sing to Jesus. That song, Dimitri said, was the greatest choir God has ever heard. The jailers were stunned. They released their hold upon him and stepped away from him in terror. One of the guards said in fear, who are you? Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall as he could and said in a loud voice, I am a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus. He was returned to his cell and shortly thereafter released where he returned to his family. Would you like to know God's power? Would you like to be strengthened according to his glorious might? It's seen in endurance. That's pleasing to God. In fact, a better example than the one Dimitri gives is, of course, the one to whom he sang, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had thorns shoved upon his head, who was derided and mocked and beaten and, and, and stripped, and, and eventually his hands and feet were nailed to a cross where he's hoisted upon the sky, uh, up in the sky for all to continue their mockery of him. And there he would take upon himself all the wages of sinners who would trust in Christ. He would bear the very wrath of God for those of us who have done so much to him. And there, what was his heart? You want to see strength? Well, he prayed, did he not? Father, forgive them. Will you forgive them? That's power. That's strength that God gives. And when we do something even similar to that in the midst of trouble and trial, my brothers and sisters, we please God. We follow Jesus' example. But of course, Jesus didn't come to the cross to be simply our example. He came to pay for our debt. So that you and I and everyone who would trust in him, yield their life to him, might be saved. That we would call out to him, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe in Jesus and I give my life to him. I offer you restoration with God forever if you would trust in Christ. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word and the encouragement that it is to us. What a prayer this is to consider. It's so meaningful to to us as we think about how is it that we might bring you pleasure. Even the very idea, the very privilege, the unimaginable joy that we can please the Lord of heaven itself, the King of kings, that we bring pleasure to heaven by the life we live here. What more can we ask for in this life? And so may we seek after that goal as we leave this place, walking in Christ, desiring to bear fruit in every good work, longing to increase in our knowledge and understanding of you, and praying, even as Paul prayed some 2,000 years ago, asking you to strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Do this amongst your people, not just us as individuals, but us as Hamilton Baptist Church, that we might be a light to this world as we live in your glorious kingdom. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.